Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, the Long War episode 11. This is the 11th episode of Long War, as I just said. And if you haven't listened to the previous 10 episodes that came before this, make sure you do or you probably won't know what's going on. However, if you're like me and you're impatient and you like to just skip to the end or you like to skip to the what are more often called the... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Juicy bits of the story, which is not to say that the other parts of the story are not juicy, but if you're the kind of person that likes to skip to near the end of the story to find out more of the juicy bits and you want to skip that background detail, then by all means, be my guest. In case you weren't aware, we are covering... The last siege of Vienna in this analysis called the Long War, and also, if you weren't aware yet, this conflict, the Long War, waged from the early 1680s to the late 1690s. The way we're going to do it in When Diplomacy Fails, though, is a bit strange, because after we finish covering the last siege of Vienna at the end of 2017, we are then, in January 2018, 
going to start covering the Korean War. Yes, how about that? Covering a war that is somewhat known and somewhat, well, I suppose relevant, you could say, for several reasons I decided to cover it, but I'm really looking forward to dropping the Korean War on you, but that does not mean that Louis XIV is going to be disappearing. On the contrary, he won't be disappearing, but he will be being put on hold, likely for the majority of 2018, if not even for all of 2018. And we'll have to just see what happens after that. It was a decision I made a while ago, and I will release a proper episode explaining my rationale for doing this. But yes, I will be covering the Korean War in from January 2018, and I thought you guys should know about it because I'm very excited, and even though I've announced it in a few different places, now you know, and it's official, and I cannot possibly go back. I've learned a whole lot from the conflict, and I have some really exciting perspectives, some really great material to share with you guys, so... I hope you'll join me for the Korean War, and I hope you'll tell your history friends that Zach Twomley is actually covering a war that they may even have heard of for a change. Won't that be nice? So with that tiny little bit of news out of the way, let's get into the latest episode of The Long War. Hello and welcome history, friends, patrons all to the 11th episode of When Diplomacy Fails Look at the Long War. Last time we brought our narrative up almost to the point of the Ottomans departing for Belgrade and beginning their march to Vienna. To reach that point we concluded on the diplomacy between Leopold and the disparate elements of the Holy Roman Empire as well as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. We saw how dependent the different strands of imperial policy were upon the other, how France was so deeply influential on proceedings how the different German states feared Swedish, French, Dutch, Polish and so many other peoples in the event of war. We broke down the individual concerns of the electors and saw that the greatest trend of all continued to be the massive rearmament program underway in the likes of Bavaria, Saxony and Hanover, while all looked to Brandenburg as the unmistakable military powerhouse of the electors, though not quite as powerful as the Holy Roman Emperor himself. If the great elector of Brandenburg, Frederick William, wished to ensure that peace returned to the empire through an agreement between the King of France and the Holy Roman Emperor, though, he was to be sorely disappointed. Indeed, perhaps the most striking trend of all throughout the heady days of summer 1682 to spring 1683 was the persistent fact that Leopold and his advisers refused to compromise, refused to back down, and refused to accept Louis XIV's different claims to aggrandizement in the empire. Never were the Habsburgs so tenacious and defiant as when they stood in clear opposition to all that Louis XIV sought to do, while Leopold's advisers, chief among them Hermann of Baden as the president of the war council, remained convinced that affairs in the east would blow over and the west would come to dominate proceedings. Yet Hermann's estimations had been repeatedly called into question by the time Albert Caprara sent home an alarming message in September 1682. The Ottomans were not quiescent, Hungary could not be pacified and the fearsome elements within the long-ignored East were swirling together to form a threat to Habsburg integrity which was so severe not even the profoundly distracted Emperor could ignore it any longer. Forging a deal with the King of Poland by spring 1683, it remained to be seen where the blow would first be struck and this reminds us of another critical fact of the era that in spite of the latter infamy attached to the campaign, by the time the Ottoman force was on the march at the end of 1683, only a very select few individuals in the world knew of their intended destination. It was not to be merely Hungary or Krakow, but Vienna itself. 
Let's examine the final unfolding moments before such infamy then as I take you to 1665 of all years, where a certain delegation indulged in some friendly espionage. Here we think of nothing else except military affairs. A resident in Vienna writes in his diary on the 22nd of April, 1683. On paper, they were there to forge a deeper peace in the aftermath of war, but the Ottoman delegation which visited Vienna in 1665 had as their additional goal the fostering of plans and schemes which would, eventually, they believed, bring the golden apple of the Habsburgs into the ever-expanding empire of the Sultan. At some point in a future golden age, it was believed, the Turk was destined to capture Vienna and extend his domains gloriously westward. This had been the destiny of all the sultans, and Mehmed IV merely inherited the tradition of expansion. Present during the delegation was Evliya Chelebi, who commented on the city's dazzling riches and beauty, as well as Kara Mehmed, the official ambassador of the delegation, and by 1683, a senior member of Kara Mustafa's entourage. The strategic and practical advice that Kara Mehmed could give his superior regarding the deep wealth of Vienna, as much as its insufficient defences, proved invaluable to the Grand Vizier. Historians generally have a hard time piecing together the events which led to the war between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans, and indeed when the war can said to have actually have begun. There remains no simple explanation to the war's outbreak, just as there was in 1682-83 no one reason why Kara Mustafa believed that the time had come to strike a final blow at the eternal enemy of the Sultan. It has taken us several episodes to detail why Kara Mustafa believed that the time was ripe for an invasion of the Habsburg lands, since the different factors which compelled the Grand Vizier to act can be found and explained only by placing the narrative in context and unwrapping the hidden complexities of the era. There was no single outrage or insult on either side which justified what was about to befall the Habsburg's land. Similarly, it seems likely that nothing they could have done or said would have prevented the Ottomans from acting as they did. What was more important, rather than any potentially failed diplomacy, was who was in charge. In this case, it was Mehmed IV, the 40-year-old hunter-sultan with a penchant for grand military campaigns, but a preference for his fabulous palace gardens at Adrianople, and an inferiority complex to match. And of course, there was Kara Mustafa himself, the adopted Caprulu family member who had since married into the Sultan's family, and saw in the coming campaign the best opportunity to cement his legacy and legend as one of the Sultan's greatest advisors. Indeed, it is possible to look at what followed as being engineered by these two men above all. Yet as we know, it wasn't merely these two men that pushed the Ottoman army onward, but the ideal circumstances for such a campaign to slot neatly into the troubles and tribulations of the Habsburgs. 
By late spring 1683, Leopold had spent much monies and energy attempting to rouse the princes and potentates within the Holy Roman Empire to act alongside him in a common defence strategy. Yet, contrary to what the circumstances of the early 1680s may suggest, Leopold didn't seek to rouse support for use against the Turk, but against Louis XIV. This fact is one we've encountered time and again when the inclinations of the emperor and his court were concerned, with Louis XIV taking full advantage in the aftermath of the Treaty of Nijmegen, which had left many exhausted after the Franco-Dutch War, the French were able to bluff their way through a series of regional victories culminating in Strasbourg in September 1681. The aftershocks of this coup were still being felt by spring 1683. Not only did Leopold's ministers remain convinced that Louis XIV represented the greatest threat to the Habsburg interest, but so too did Leopold's German subjects, the aforementioned princes and potentates in the Holy Roman Empire, who as we've seen all possessed their own complex ambitions and agendas. It quickly proved impossible to rally the princes along the Rhine or Baltic to Leopold's side, as everywhere his agents worked, they seemed to find a latent French influence which terrorised the German ruler the closer his domains were to French lands. Overcoming these fears required great acts of selflessness, bravery and defiance on the part of these rulers, and many were simply not equipped to take such risks. Louis XIV's sphere of influence, it seemed, had netted France a solid buffer of states too afraid of him to act out, even while collectively they were too strong for France to simply invade and annex. With the Francophobe Spanish faction still in play in Leopold's court, it was proving immensely difficult for the Holy Roman Emperor's ministers to take the Turkish threat seriously. John Stoy noted how, even with the considerable examples of Ottoman preparation and the evidence that an attack was imminent, the likes of Hermann of Baden, president of the Habsburg War Council, believed that everything could be turned to the Habsburg favour with some skilful diplomacy. This may have been the case, but Habsburg diplomacy in the East had been anything but skillful by early 1683. To the end, it remained overtly conciliatory and utterly naive. In late 1682, for example, Imre Tokoli, the de facto leader of the Hungarian opposition to Habsburg rule in Hungary, called for a diet to meet in Kassa, where taxes would be voted for Hungary's common defence, and as much as possible of the region would be placed legislatively at least, under his command, after several years of a mere military occupation. This process clearly resembled a grave threat to the Habsburg's authority in the region, and was also totally at odds with the Holy Roman Empire's constitution, which nowhere allowed for such an eventuality to take place, especially by a mere magnate like Imre Tokarli was. Yet, despite the objections to the proceedings on these grounds, Hermann of Baden meekly ordered a Habsburg rep to be sent to the Diet at Kassa to negotiate with Tokoli, instantly granting that Hungarian the legitimacy he craved. What was worse as well, while Tokoli assembled his allies in Kassa on the 7th of January 1683, Hermann claimed in a memorandum on Habsburg policy that a treaty with France on the terms Louis desired was out of the question, and that to compensate for the friction this would create, Compromise had to be sought with the rebellious Hungarians. Tokoli was able to get wind of this memorandum, and he thus knew full well the extent to which Habsburg security depended on getting him on side. With a breathtaking naivety and ignorance of the situation, Hermann of Baden continued to believe not only that Tokoli could be pacified by flattering words and gestures, but that once pacified, Tokoli would himself go out of his own way to persuade the Ottoman Empire 
to not invade. In line with this aim of flattery and persuasion, the Habsburg agent at the Casa Diet in January 1683 made himself completely agreeable to virtually everything that Tocqueville requested. He also attempted to woo the Hungarian magnates assembled at the Diet with little success, and he then met with a delegation of Hungarians who were about to make their way to Belgrade, where the Sultan and his army were expected to arrive within a few weeks. The Habsburg envoy's failure to convince anyone of the delegation proved costly. Rather than consider his offers, they merely ratted him out to the Ottomans when Kara Mustafa and his master arrived in early May. Albert Caprara would follow the Ottoman force from Constantinople to Adrianople and then to Belgrade. The entire time he travelled, he was following this massive military body, and he became more and more convinced of the futility in trying to reason with the Turk. He was horrified when he learned that the Hungarian delegation had been waiting for the Sultan in early May 1683, and that they were eager to pass on to him what they had learned from the Habsburgs. The passing of such secrets portrayed the Habsburgs in an even more desperate light. What was worse, this delegation then insisted that the Habsburgs themselves were completely broke, militarily weak, devoid of allies, and utterly vulnerable in Vienna. Vienna, the delegation insisted, was where the Ottomans should press their assault. Karim Mustafa heard this news and felt again that his grand plans for his own legacy and his master's triumph were vindicated. Here were a group of rebellious Hungarian subjects who had no reason to lie or exaggerate, and their counsel was to be valued. While that Hungarian delegation was visiting Belgrade to confer with the Ottomans in early May, the Habsburg envoy continued to confer with Tokoli in his diet. Tokoli disingenuously demanded lordships over Habsburg Hungary, the title of Prince of the Empire, similar in many ways to what a German potentate would have, and membership of the Order of the Golden Fleece for symbolic purposes. The Habsburgs proved willing to agree in principle to all terms, and the envoy was instructed to base Tocqueville in by further offers of bribes, of titles and status. Things seemed to be going Vienna's way for a time, and Herman of Baden could perhaps have comforted himself with the lie that Imre Tocqueville meant every word he said, and that in spite of the deeply unpleasant experiences as a Habsburg subject that he had experienced, Tocqueville would be loyal deep down to the Christian Habsburgs before he were loyal to the Islamic Turk. Yet, Herman of Baden and Leopold deceived themselves. On the 21st of June 1683, Imre Tocqueville abruptly announced to the Habsburg envoy that the truce between he and his old Habsburg masters had ended, and consequently he and his Hungarian allies were due to prepare an assault alongside the Turks. Aghast at this news, Herman of Baden ordered the envoy to up the ante, to apply more butter for the flattery and to promise not to break the truce for a whole month if... Tocqueville promised not to do the same. One wonders how utterly out of touch the Habsburgs must have seemed to Imre Tocqueville, but the judgment of John Stoy put it best when he noted, The policy of appeasement on this occasion had deceived nobody except the policymakers in Vienna. Its most sinister consequence must have been to slacken over a period of months the vigour with which the military defences of Hungary and elsewhere were prepared for battle. Herman of Baden was very historically fortunate that Vienna did not in fact fall, or his name would perhaps be as associated with failure as that of Kara Mustafa's. As it stood in May 1683, before the scales fell from Habsburg eyes regarding the Hungarian situation, affairs were cleared up between the Ottomans and Habsburgs. It was at Belgrade on the 11th of May 1683 
that Albert Kaprauer received a memorandum from Herman of Baden, which he duly passed on to Karim Mustafa. This letter put it that the Holy Roman Emperor had made every effort to keep the peace, but that he now recognised with great regret that a state of war existed between the two empires. In accordance with the laws of nations, Herman of Baden implored Kara Mustafa to allow Albert Caprara to return home, his great task for bringing peace between the two rivals having totally failed, but to little fault of his own. Thus, if one wants to speak in terms of the legal technicalities of the era, the war only officially began, at least in the Habsburg consideration, on the 11th of May 1683. As we well know though, the war had already been long underway in Kara Mustafa's mind, and as soon as the Sultan had set out with his massive army the previous autumn, it was known and expected that a large campaign against the Habsburgs would be launched. Everything flowed from that act, the encouragement and support of revolts in Hungary with Tokoli's leadership, the acceptance and solicitation of advice and support from France, and the constant overwhelming build-up of armed forces from the different provinces, allies, vassals of the Sultan. My general style necessitates me stating that a war began at a certain point, but it is highly likely that Kara Mustafa would simply have attacked without any formal announcement of the commencement of hostilities. Such niceties were not the common Ottoman policy to follow after all, when times of war required neither niceties nor formalities, only armed force. The act of measuring the outbreak of the war on paper is perhaps less useful than measuring when Kara Mustafa had already declared war on the Habsburgs in his heart and mind, and this moment may have been as early as spring 1682, when he first began to scheme of ways to make Tokali's revolt work for the Turk, though certainly in his heart, not necessarily his mind, he had been yearning for revenge all along. There is also reason to suppose that as soon as the war with Russia ended in January 1681, Kara Mustafa turned his attentions to the only significant historical foil to his family's reputation and prestige, Vienna. Whatever the true date for the beginning of the war, whatever way you want to put it, or whenever Mustafa officially opted to strike, it is now clear that he never expected to halt his advance. According to the Ottoman custom, all the Grand Vizier truly required was his Sultan's approval and permission. Once this occurred, the Vizier was effectively a law unto himself. As the Sultan hung back for a time in Belgrade before gradually withdrawing to Adrianople for his favourite pastime, hunting, he invested his Vizier with the powers over life and death which only the Sultan could possess. He made Mustafa a Saraskar, effectively granting him the authority to rule in the name of Mehmed IV and to answer only to the Sultan in the aftermath. Thanks to these immensely significant boosts to Mustafa's confidence and powers, it would be accurate to say that his heart and mind now directed the Ottoman Empire's foreign policy like never before. Since this same heart and mind had long ago declared war on the Habsburgs, and since his heart may have declared war on the Habsburgs when the Battle of St. Gothard failed 20 years before, it was only logical that now the rest of the Ottoman Empire would follow his example. Mustafa replied to Herman of Baden that Albert Caprara would be allowed to leave for Buda on the 12th of June, which the grateful Habsburg agent did. Yet, with their own true source of information now absent from the Ottoman camp, it followed that all the Habsburgs would have to rely upon now were scant rumours and the accounts of fleeing refugees. Right at the moment when they needed to know precisely where Mustafa was aiming his forces, 
the Habsburgs could now have no idea where he was headed. At this moment, you'll remember, the Habsburg envoy was lulling himself into a false sense of security with the wily Tokoli, who, after demanding the moon, then withdrew from these negotiations and arranged to meet Mustafa at the river port of Ostiak. If you remember our mind map of the marshy plains of Hungary from previous episodes, you'll remember it forms essentially a square of territory surrounded by rivers and waterlogged land, and Ostiak was a port in the bottom right corner of our square, in the eastern portion of the river Drava, which connected with the Danube as it flowed from the north. At this location on the 10th of June 1683, Tokoli met Kara Mustafa in person. After some deliberation, the two men seemed to convince the other of the success of their venture. Mustafa promised to make Tokoli king of Vienna and Hungary, and Imre Tokoli, the Hungarian menace of the Habsburgs, promised to field a large army of over 15,000 men. With both men spurred on, Mustafa and Tokoli were convinced by their own collective enthusiasm of the wisdom in striving to take Vienna. At this point, news reached them that the Habsburgs had been besieging some key fortresses along the Danube that the Ottomans owned. The next day, Kara Mustafa would cross the bridges at Ostjak into the Hungarian plain. The rush to Vienna had begun. As the Ottomans marched alongside their huge detachments of vassals, allies and mercenaries, it is worth bringing the story back to the man at the helm of the operation. Since our narrative on the campaign for Vienna began several episodes back, we've often touched on the fact that the Grand Vizier Kara Mustafa was essentially the mastermind of the whole operation, or that at the very least, he went a long way towards persuading the Sultan that it would be a good idea. When we are greeted with critically important figures like Kara Mustafa in history, we're often able to delve deeper into their character to discover their motives, their ambitions and the reasons they upheld for making war at a certain point in time. With Kara Mustafa, the issue of discerning precisely why he believed it would be the opportune time to make a play for Vienna is less clear-cut. Even the Grand Vizier himself is shrouded in mystery, mostly because of what he did and did not do in 1683. In the years that followed the failure of the siege, it shouldn't surprise us to learn that triumphalist accounts of the event painted Kara Mustafa in a profoundly negative light and portrayed his campaign against Vienna as bloodthirsty and merciless, which made sense, these chroniclers claim, because such traits fitted Mustafa's character perfectly. He was a vain, impatient and fussy man in his mid-fifties. He had nothing but contempt for Westerners, Christians and especially the Habsburgs. He had countless numbers of his own men carelessly set to slaughter in previous campaigns against Poland and then against Russia. He would not listen to counsel, he killed off his political opponents and he ruthlessly purged his own Caprulu family from internal competitors to his position. He was, as you can see, the perfect villain for a story that ended in victory outside a desperate city. Yet the story is almost certainly not so clear-cut. Mustafa probably did hold some of these characteristics. He was necessarily ruthless and ambitious in a world where the Sultan could replace his Grand Vizier at any time. He did appear to have an aversion for Christians, but then so did several Muslims in the Ottoman Empire at this point. The feeling, as we well know, was certainly mutual and far from abnormal between the two religious communities at this point. 
He also did not listen to the counsel of his peers. The play for Vienna seemed to have dominated all of his thoughts and processes. For the whole year it took him to fully plan and carry it out. He removed or forcibly silenced those that sought to criticise his strategy, including the pashas of Buddha and Damascus, while he surrounded himself with those that believed it was a good idea and pushed him still further, such as Imre Tokoli. Karu Mustafa sounds, to me at least, like the perfect military cum civil servant, judged and compared to Western standards, aside from his religious differences, he is little better or worse than the likes of Louis XIV's Louvois, or even Charles II's Earl of Danby, if you can remember him from many, many episodes back. It should also be added that we simply do not have any records from the Ottomans themselves, which address either Sultan Mehmed IV or Karim Mustafa's character traits. The best we can do is judge their actions based on what we do happen to know about them and their backgrounds. We know that Karim Mustafa was adopted into the Kaprulu family of viziers, and later married into the Sultan's household. This status would have made him, we suspect, always eager to prove himself and to prove his ability when blood ties were absent. Mustafa had inherited the duty that all heads of the family had to avenge previous losses and to advance its destiny and honour as a clan. It was a tradition he would have been especially bound to honour considering how important the Caprulu family had been in ensuring his rise in the Ottoman court. Having been given so many opportunities because of his adopted family, Mustafa would have been determined to bring it great glory and give back, so to speak, for what that family had done for him. We don't know this to be the case, there's no record of Mustafa saying this, but from what we know of Ottoman family traditions and of Mustafa's sense of inferiority when it came to his adoption, we can do our best to guess the rest. The same goes for Mehmed IV, the the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. On the surface, this lover of the hunt, of his gardens and of easy pleasures, seemed completely out of place from the front and the ordeals of campaign. Indeed, he was especially appreciative to Mustafa for insisting that the Sultan didn't need to expose his person so excessively on campaign as he had done at the beginning of the 1672 war against the Poles the decade before. Mehmed had grown tired of that conflict in record time, mostly because it drew him far from the pleasures and comforts to which he had become accustomed. Having been on the throne since the age of seven for all his life, essentially, this now 40-year-old Sultan was in no mood to follow on a train of soldiers as though he was that same young man in the prime of his youth and patience. He wanted the easy life, yet that did not mean that such desires removed his core desire to better his house's position or to increase that of its empire. Although he was not as vibrant or energetic as his predecessors, Mehmed IV was no fool either, and he recognised that the capture of Vienna would have catapulted his name into the upper echelons of Ottoman legend. Alongside Mehmed the Conqueror of Constantinople and basically everything else, and Suleiman the Magnificent, the Hammer of Hungary. The more modern historian on the event, Andrew Wheatcroft, in comparison to John Stoy, who wrote in the 1960s, wrote that Sultan Mehmed IV yearned for renown, a prize not dissimilar to Louis XIV's quest for glory in years past. To these character analyses, it should also be added the strategic facts of the situation which we have learned so far. First, the Ottomans had regularly been on the receipt of information regarding the weakness of the Habsburg position in Europe. Second, this weakness stemmed from two major sources. In Louis XIV's machinations in the capitals of Europe, 
including Constantinople, and then the self-inflicted Habsburg wound in Imre Tokoli's Hungarian revolt. Third, the Ottomans understood their position to be one of unquestionable strength. Their wars with Poland and Russia had only emboldened the Sultan and added to the idea that Turkish military might was just as strong as ever. Fourth, the Ottomans' own extracurricular events, above all the costly set of wars with Safafid Persian Iran, were currently on hold, which freed up Ottoman attentions for the moment. If we were to add a fifth cause to this, it would have been the characters of the Sultan and the Grand Vizier, who seemed to fit in perfectly with the general trend of Ottoman policy at the moment. Perhaps the most obvious fact we have to remember, though, was the very simple one that the Ottomans didn't always need a valid reason to resume the war. Just as surely as Kara Mustafa's reasoning for renewing the ottoman Habsburg conflict did not have to be watertight in the modern sense of the word. There were no moral or legislative checks which either side were required to pass before they made war against each other. Just as surely as the Habsburgs sought to take advantage of Ottoman weaknesses in the past, so too did the Ottomans seek to do the same here. We do not need a comprehensive explanation for why this was the case. The simple facts that you had virtually side by side two competing empires who claimed extensive and conflicting titles twinned with different religious identities would do the trick. The 17th century had seen wars break out between large empires for far less, after all. In short, what I'm getting at here, guys, this is just a roundabout way of me saying that while historians like us try to find a sensible cause and effect formula for why the Ottomans decided to embark upon the siege of Vienna, such a formula doesn't really need to be applied here. The Ottoman-Hasburg relationship wasn't like that of any other Western European states. One only needs to cast a light upon the incessant annual raiding across the different borders to get a picture of how conflict-ridden that relationship was. All that was required to tip the scales towards war was the perception in one camp that they would have the advantage over the other in the contest to come. In the apparently unending struggle between Habsburg and Ottoman, it was enough for Sultan Mehmed IV and Kara Mustafa to look at the facts of the day, roll the dice, and conclude that they stood a good enough chance of victory to invest their considerable time and resources into the coming campaign. The Ottomans didn't march at half steam. If they determined to wage war in the West, it would always be done in the same way and with the same formula. If anything had changed, it was that the weight of the artillery now slowed the average Ottoman advance down to that similar to Western armies. Yet the terrifying ability of the Turk to mobilise the varied elements of his military complex was plain for all to see, and they clearly outmatched anything that Western Europe could produce on the field. This was the Ottoman art of war, and we've seen from previous episodes that it excelled the European style in several respects. Not only were the Ottomans better prepared, supplied and equipped, they also maintained a professionalism in their ranks, which Europeans would have much cause to envy. By contrast, of course, European soldiers like those in the French or Habsburg armies relied upon the robust nature of the military drill and the experience of their commanders to do the rest. Yet, both the Habsburg and French were consistently plagued throughout their own campaigns by problems they encountered when on campaign, due to a lack of food and forage. The Ottomans, in a pattern brought to bear since before the turn of the 17th century, made a habit of bringing their livestock for slaughter with them, or providing the grain in previously appointed stores, and in housing the men in miniature tent cities while on the move. 
The contrast was striking when one examined the armies from east to west on the move, yet the one major drawback of the Ottoman penchant for meticulous planning and hauling their huge artillery pieces, and of course their huge army across vast swathes of swampy Hungarian plains, was that it took a great deal of time. Their respite that this granted the Hasburgs was thus a small mercy when one considered the storm that was about to descend upon them in Vienna and all across the front line. Ever since news of the Ottoman departure from Constantinople in the previous autumn, works had begun to toughen the defences of Vienna. Yet, could the Golden Apple really be prepared for the greatest standing army the Western world had yet seen? In the next episode, we'll examine how prepared or unprepared the Habsburgs truly were as we count down the final moments, and yes, I'm aware I might be dragging this out somewhat, but we will count down the final moments towards the most incredible sight in early modern Europe. And I hope you'll join me then, my lovely, wonderful, glorious history friends. And I'd like to say a huge thanks for listening to this show once again. My name is Zach. You've been here with When Diplomacy Fails for the last half hour or so. Thanks again, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 